Well, thank you, everybody, for joining us today at Broadcast Team Alpha. I'm Nori Love. My co-host is Agi Nast. And we are truly blessed when the universe aligns and brings us extraordinary individuals like Paul Wallace. His presence needs no introduction, but I would like to take a moment to express our gratitude for his being here. And for those of you, Augie's going to tell you a little bit more about Paul, but for those of you who are not yet aware, we have a membership group here on YouTube. Augie is diligently curating exclusive videos for our dedicated audience. And by subscribing and turning on the bell notification, you will always be informed about our upcoming shows. We're also expanding, guys. Have you noticed? You can find us in lots and lots of places, including the Conscious Awakening Network and 32 other platforms and streams. So again, thank you for being here. Thank you for your generosity in supporting us financially. It's greatly appreciated, and it helps us cover the cost of production. Without another syllable from me, I would like to pass the floor to Augie, who will introduce our esteemed and luminary guest and shine even more light on the amazing Paul Wallace. Yep, we will do that. We uh, actually we are shining a little bit of light, but he is the one that is going to be shining tonight because we have Paul Anthony Wallace with us. And I, I got to say a few things about him because uh, there's things that we need to remember again. And that is that uh, he's a world traveler, a researcher and a digger into old records. Hardly anybody ever get to see or hear about. He is an international best-selling author, and his books, they probe into the ancient human history and mythologies that appears to be coming true, many of them. He's a sought-after speaker. He makes video documentaries, and uh, those are seen by the millions. He's also serving as an archdeacon at a network an Anglican church in Australia where he lived. And uh, he has many written titles on Christian mysticism and spirituality. One of his books is called Escaping from Eden, which was held by George Nordy, uh, George Nordy, that is, at uh, Coast to Coast AM. He said that book is kind of like the chariots of the gods of this age, and that is powerful. And um, his latest book, um, Eden Conspiracy, is what we're going to talk a lot about tonight, because that will totally wipe out and change and put under question most of what we have been told and learned over the decades that we have been alive. And uh, uh, I guess without any more from me, we want to hear from Paul. Welcome to the show. Welcome, Paul. Welcome, Paul. Thank you. Good day, guys. It's lovely to be back with you. Good day. I love it. Love your accent. And I think it's fortuitous that you're here at this moment in time, as always. You know, you're always on time. But especially now, Paul, there's so much going on in the world. And you know, we need to know that there's some hopefulness, you know, on the horizon for us, or maybe in the air for us, right, wherever that might be. And, you know, we've had the congressional hearings. And what are you thinking over from your vantage point in the world? Well, I, I agree with you, Nori. I think this is a very uh, timely moment to be talking about the possibility that we're in a populated cosmos. People know me as the paleo contact guy, which is the theory that our ancestors had contact in the deep past. But right now, it's about contact in the present. The yes. uh, congressional hearing that you referred to uh, was dealing with a formal complaint from David Grush about one arm of government withholding information from another arm of government and the legality of that is being challenged and the information that's being withheld is to do with the program as it's known mm -hmm. and that's the pentagon's 
program of reverse engineering materials retrieved from UFO crashes. Now, if people haven't been following the story, they'll think, oh, come off it. This is the X-Files. But no, just five minutes on Google, on YouTube, you realize, no, this is the news. This is happening. This happened in the U.S. Congress. The admission has already been made by the Pentagon. Four years ago, the Pentagon came clean and said, yes, we've had units in place for more than 70 years examining materials from crash retrievals. David Grush has taken it to the next level by declaring that the program not only has that, but has entire functional craft, and that the program has involved contact with pilots of those craft, or non-human biologics, to Mm -hmm. use the current language. So a lot of people have come very rapidly into the picture with this now being discussed publicly uh, in Washington and are wondering what in the world is going on? Yes. What what are these UFO crashes that have not been in the news for 70 years, but apparently behind closed doors we've been investigating them? Is there collaboration going on? Um Christmas 2020, I think it was, Hey Mashed, the Brigadier General, who was Israel's Chief of Space Security, stepped forward and said, yes, there has been collaboration going on for 70 years. But the concern in Washington is not to do with collaboration, it's to do with national security. It's Mm -hmm. the question of, is there an existential threat facing us? And if there is, shouldn't Congress be allowed to know? And so certainly members of Congress are very unsettled by what's happening at the moment. And anyone following the news may be unsettled by it and may be thinking, are we about to be invaded? But I find the best way of keeping our feet on the ground, but also having a more hopeful orientation towards the world and where we're going, is provided by our ancestors who talked openly about contact we have narratives to do with our place in the cosmos that are thousands and tens of thousands of years old so that we will understand the world as it is today why things work the way they do today why there's this push and pull of disclosure and non-disclosure in washington and that's why i'm an enthusiast for my books because they're all based in ancestral narratives that say, look, our ancestors have not allowed us to reach 2023 without preparation for it. So let's listen to what it is they want to tell us. Absolutely. And there's one thing that I see going on in Washington that is is a little um, alarming, and that the military is coming out and saying, this is a threat to national security. There's so much information out there now, it cannot be stopped. But as soon as they start bringing out the term national security, they will be able to classify it and we won't hear about it. So, Well, that- there's that danger. The other danger is that it becomes a pretext for yeah. even more money going to the military-industrial complex, which really means a group of families who are the stakeholders and the corporations that benefit from war. And, you know, any crisis, the MIC will say, oh, let's let's leverage this. Well, here's a fantastic crisis that could be leveraged so that the military have more budget, more uh, classified budgets, covert budgets, more power, in effect. And I think we should um, we should not be manipulated into thinking that that's the right response. In the hearings themselves, the three experts who were testifying, so that was David Grush, uh, David Fravor, and the third fellow, I've, I've forgotten his name, my apologies to him, but they were all three asked if the craft be, being encountered by U.S. defense were um could be responded to by our technology. And they all said, no, we couldn't respond, that their technology is way above anything that our science can even explain. And then the question was asked, well, do they pose a threat to us? And none of them said yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Noteworthy. 
when it comes to science can explain that part of it, that is the science that we are allowed to know about. The black oh, that's project. true, of course, because we've got black projects, of course, there's been technology sharing. But uh, where I was headed with that uh, flow of logic was that in all the encounters we've had, over the 70 years that we've had units oversighted by the Pentagon researching this, the technology with which we've engaged has never attacked us, has never bombed us, has never tried to shoot us down. It's always been the other way around. And so when the three experts say they're a potential threat, you need to study that word very carefully. In 70 years, they have, they have not aggressed against us. It has been the other way around. So why are we framing this moment as a moment of existential threat? And as soon as we listen to older narratives of contact, contact, we realize that there is a far bigger picture that offers us rather more reassurance, which might offer less profit to the military-industrial complex, but gives us a better picture of where we are in the cosmos. I think it comes down to one concept, an old one, and that is that there is no money in the solution. There's only money in the problem. Yes, that's well put, Agi. I think you're right. Well, everything that you said gave me the opportunity for an exhalation that I haven't had in a really long time. So thank you for that. Thank you so much for that. And, you know, I, I, I love that your books open the, the vault, you know, that vault that's we're never supposed to open, um, to talk about our ancestors, to talk about that, are they benevolent? Could they even be nurturing? Are they here? Are they really here to help us? Right. We're, you know, kicking the can down the road, wondering, you know, are they going to come help us? Have they helped us before? And what do you think, Paul? Well, when I listen to, for instance, oh boy. Yeah, a little frozen there, guys. Just bear with us. All around the world. So there are stories that are worrying and disturbing, stories of invasion, stories of conquest, colonization, exploitation. But then there are other stories uh, which reveal another side of the picture. Almost every culture on the planet, if you go to the folkloric layer of their story, will have stories of helpers coming from the stars tens of thousands of years ago to teach our ancestors how to have a better experience on planet Earth, to teach us the rudiments of farming, to give us the tools for civilization building, teaching us what plants are good for food, which ones are good to avoid, which ones are good for medicine, which ones are good for unlocking higher cognitive abilities. And I should say that last one is part of mainstream anthropological science these days. There's a very serious conversation happening right now suggesting that our great leap forward in terms of intelligence came from botanicals that we were suddenly introduced to that activated our imaginations in a way we hadn't experienced before and enabled us to become the curious technological species that we have become. So, for instance, I live in Australia. And if you go to the Northern Territory and listen to the elders of the Yongu people, they will talk about a time when their ancestors didn't know how to hunt or how to fish. So this is a memory from a very primitive time and a time when they were new in that territory. That's remarkable in itself because Aboriginal Australian culture is so wedded to the land the original Australians' expertise in living in balance with the land is renowned. And so for them to have this story saying, well, there was a time when we were unfamiliar with the land in that way, when we didn't know how to live in balance, and we had to be helped by others, that's quite something. And the others that the Yongu people speak about were not a previous human civilization. They were a totally different kind of being called the Mimi. 
And what caught their attention about the Mimi was that they were physically built very, very differently. They were very tall and they were incredibly slender. And they had this ability to appear and disappear on the wind, which is a reference you can find in other cultures, this ability to turn up and disappear using modalities or technology that our ancestors didn't understand. And there was no shared language. So how was this tutelage going to happen? Well, the Yongu people talk about the dance of the Mimi, that they would watch the dance of the Mimi. And from that, they learned how to hunt and how to fish and how to find the plants they needed. This is a very beautiful way of talking about a very intimate kind of contact, but it's also an observation of behavior. What is the dance of the hunt? What is the dance of the fishing expedition? What is the dance of the harvest? This is the language they use. And so it refers to a nurturing contact with another species that goes back at least 60,000 years, which is very well established time frame for the indigenous Australian presence. It could be as far back as 120,000 years with more recent archaeological finds in Australia. So I would suggest we've got some very early stories talking about contact from a very positive point of view. It's there in Australia. You go to Central and South America, you'll hear the same story told of Hun Hunapu, who came and taught uh, the ancestors of the people living there how to cultivate corn and then how to turn corn into all kinds of food. Listen to the Zulu people. They have the same story. It's the story of Mbabwana Warisa. And I've gone around the world listening to these stories, recognizing the patterns, understanding that they're giving credit to beings who are not human, beings who have come from somewhere else. And in the Bible, that credit is given to a female figure called Asherah. And the, and the area, the discipline of biblical archaeology takes us a degree further by offering us some data, pinning down where we think Asherah was from. And it was from a planet orbiting a star in the Pleiades. And the Pleiades comes up all around the world in indigenous narratives. You can go to Central and South America. You can go to China. You can go to the Levant. And the Pleiades will come up time after time as the place from which our ancient helpers came. And to understand there's that spectrum, I think, is very reassuring. We had Hayam Ashed talk about the fact that at a covert government level, we're in contact with the Galactic Federation. So that implies a plurality of demographics. Well, the Bible says the same thing. It talks about the Tseva Hashemayim, the armies of the sky. And on the one hand, you've got beings like Asherah who came and nurtured us. And then at the other end of the spectrum, beings like the Yahweh character who came and colonized us maybe tens of thousands of years later, after we've developed farming, after we've become a human civilization on planet Earth. And the book of Deuteronomy talks about a time when powerful beings arrived, carved up the lands so that you've got a portion of land belonging to a powerful one. They own the resources under the land, above the land, and the people who live on the land. And the story of Yahweh is part of that bigger picture. And so in the Bible, you've got this range of experiences, positive, negative, light, dark, helpful, exploitative. And it begins to give us a framework by which to observe what's happening to us in the present and begin to interpret our current reality. So that they came in on the wind conjures up you know, coming in on a ship to me. Yes, track? riding riding on the winds. That's right, yeah. flying in the air. And in the Bible, there's this amazing word, ruach, which yeah. came to be translated as the Spirit of God. But its first appearance in Genesis is describing the arrival of technology that could do terraforming of a devastated planet. And at root... The word means a movement of air or a wind. 
and it echoes what's in the ancient Sumerian stories, which are the source narratives of the Bible. And the Sumerian narrative of the Enuma Elish talks about the four winds, which began by separating salt water from fresh water, which is the first thing you're going to do if you're going to rehabilitate devastated land, and then separate the water from the land, and then create habitable spaces for animals and ultimately us. You go to the Philippines, there's the story of the hawk creating vortices of wind with its wings in order to begin forming islands and terraforming the planet. Uh, it's a story that echoes in the Nigerian story. The Efik people talk about Osanaboa uh, arriving above the floodwaters and then creating islands and, and terraforming. So the overlaps of these stories really caught my attention. But this idea of wind and wind being an instrument of terraforming and wind being a byproduct of a piece of technology that's hovering in the air that repeats all around the globe. Mm. Terraforming. So we're talking about terraforming. So my curiosity wants to know, is that something new or you use the word rehabilitate, didn't you? Yes. You? Yes, that's so right. Why, why would we be rehabilitating? That's a great question. And it really arises from so many of the world's uh, narratives that we consider creation narratives. But whether you're reading the Bible in Genesis 1, or the Enuma Elish, the Sumerian story, or if you're reading the uh, Mayan story, or the story of Viracocha from the Andean culture, the Filipino story, the story always begins on a planet that has suffered a devastation, that's been flooded. And the Hebrew phrase in the Bible is tohu wa bohu, which means devastated and laid waste by something. Mm. And I think that our creation stories, they give themselves away as really being something else in a number of ways. And in the Bible, the thing that gives it away is the fact that the planet Earth exists before the sun, moon, and stars, if you read the sequence. That doesn't quite make sense. The planet's <laughs> already there, and it's flooded and shrouded in darkness. Then you have to ask, who's telling this story? Mm. And why is it told from you know a surface of Earth perspective? If this is a cultural memory, then clearly it's not a creation story. It's a story of something that was witnessed. And when you listen to the different metaphors from culture to culture, the same things appear to be witnessed. Something in the sky, blasts of air, the separation of waters, the drying of the land, the assistance with uh, the rehabilitation of flora and fauna, and then an adaptation of our ancestors who were there witnessing it all. And so in the Hebrew narrative, we see the sky being cleared, and all of a sudden we can see the sun for the first time in maybe generations with any clarity. And then we can see the moon, and then we can see the stars. It's not that they're being created in that order from the vantage of a pre-existing planet, it's that our ancestors saw the atmosphere being cleared after a devastation. So you ask, what could have put the planet into a condition where the atmosphere is that thick with soot? Yes. What puts the planet into a condition where so much of it is flooded? And you go into our geological history, and you'll run quite quickly into the younger, driest, cold period. And the earliest um, evidence we have of civilization as we know it, according to the mainstream, is 10,000 years ago, Fertile Crescent, Karagada, the first farm examined, revealed by a team from the University of Az in Norway and the Max Planck Institute in Cologne, Germany. Manfred Hoyne took the team in in 1998 and says, here is the place where for the first time we see the genetic alteration of naturally occurring plants to become cultivatable crops. Here is the place where for the first time we see animal husbandry. This is the great leap forward. And what's interesting about it 
is that it dates to about 10,000 years ago, just as a vastly reduced human population is re-emerging from the most recent ice age. Mm. So this is a period when the existence of humanity is hanging in the balance, and all of a sudden there's this massive leap forward in agronomy, which is hard to explain. I used to live on the farm that was home to William Farrer, and William Farrer is the person who developed Federation wheat for Australia. So that's a kind of wheat that can grow in Australia's harsh climate. It took him 20 years to work out how to genetically modify British wheat so that it could grow in Australia. 20 years with all the benefits of 19th century science, with all the benefits of being a farmer, the son of a farmer, the grandson of a farmer, all that knowledge and science, it took him 20 years to do that for one crop. Well, apparently this family 10,000 years ago did it 11 times over to create 11 crops for the first time, no textbooks to work off, and they invent animal husbandry at the same time. So something happened that was a great leap forward it was a recovery from a devastation. The younger, driest cold period would have involved massive flooding, sky fires at the initiation of it, a uh, an atmosphere full of soot that caused the deep freeze, just as we were emerging from the previous ice age. So there are a few smoking guns to suggest that our creation narratives might have emerged from that time, except the plot thickens when you drive two hours uh, to the west, I think, of Karagadar, and you arrive at Gobekli Tepe, and you've got a megalithic site that predates that farm. Mm. So how is that possible? Hunter-gatherers, foragers, nomads don't build megalithic sites 50 times the size of Stonehenge. That suggests a previous civilization that already knew how to farm. And it fits into a bigger, more complex picture of a whole number of interventions safeguarding human survival, assisting us, teaching us agronomy, teaching us the rudiments of city building and civilization building. And by the time you're at Genesis 11, 11 chapters into the Bible, I believe you probably read the story of five planetary resets. The younger Dryas was only wow. one. Things yep. like that have happened before. Plato argued that every 5,000 years or so, there will be a cataclysm of that order that will take civilization to a virtual zero and a reboot is required. So I'm not the first person to suggest that this has happened a number of times. I'm not the first person to say we had help with each reset. Plato makes the same case. And our ancestors share memories of it from culture to culture all around the world. Mm. I'm wondering, it's obvious that we had some help. It couldn't be done without it. So what are these gods, and that is not God, but gods and the helpers? Who were they? Were they people like us, maybe, that could relate better to people back then? Or were they reptilian in nature? Or what do you think about that? Well, that's a great question. I think it was a whole range of beings. So I mentioned the Mimi, described by the Yongu, who are incredibly tall and slender and beautiful. That's what caught the attention of um, the Yongu ancestors. And then you have stories from Native American peoples who talk about beautiful ones, shining ones coming from the stars and giving this education. And very often that Pleiadian connection is there as well. If you go to the Babylonian story, we've got a physical description of the beings that turned up there and showed the ancestors of the ancient Sumerians how to do agriculture and how to create cities, and then how to manage civic society. It was a very full education they received from beings who were described as human-like, fish-like, amphibious, advanced, wearing clothing that covered their whole bodies, appearing to have two heads, a human-type head and then another head above it. And some people listen to these descriptions, and it's the description 
left to us by Barossus, who was a uh, Greek Babylonian priest. And he took some time over the physical description of these beings called Oannes and the Apkalu. And it's almost like you're hearing the first reaction. And the first reaction isn't, wow, look at how advanced these beings are. Listen to how clever they are. The first reaction is, why do they look like that? Are they human or are they something else? Why are they wearing clothes that cover the whole of their body? They'd never seen anything like that. And is that two heads or is that a helmet over a head? It's as if we can hear the puzzlement in Barossus's description. But his summary is that Oannes was an extraordinary monster who was first witnessed on the shores of the Red Sea. So not a previous human civilization, not a god, that word is never used, an extraordinary monster. They live in underwater bases, they can operate on the land, and they have some kind of a relationship with authorities in the heavens, is his phrase. So the hint there that they're part of an extraterrestrial demographic, but this one is based on the planet and is helping us. So that's already quite a range of beings. There are other stories in which our helpers look very much like us, except they're all drop-dead gorgeous. And that's what gets our attention. That's why we sit at their feet in rapt attention, listening to their wisdom. So I think it's a number of interventions, a number of demographics, and there's also a cultural difference uh, represented among the stories of contact because the Babylonian story talks about beings who came and taught us not only how to farm, not only how to build, but how to create money so that people no longer work for things, they work for tokens. And then you create banks that issue and control the tokens and then devalue the tokens so that people have to work ever harder to get enough tokens. Uh, you've got that, you've got legal systems, you've got record keeping, you've got laws and law keeping. So now you've got a class system of those who make the laws and those who keep the laws those who manage the people, those who are managed. And so the Babylonian input of Oannes and the Apkalu, there's a bit of light and shade to that story. Sounds very much like the society in which we live today, and that input seems to be the one that leads to the ancient Sumerian culture. So maybe that's the 10,000 years ago input. But then when we listen to the stories of Hunhunapu, Babwana Orisa, uh, the Yongu, that sounds like an older narrative because that describes the kind of science that's possessed by indigenous peoples around the world who know how to live in balance with the land. It's a different kind of farming. It's not about subduing nature, controlling it and changing it. It's about living with what you have and learning how to live in harmony with it, how to farm without depleting your supply of plants, without depleting the soil, without depleting your livestock. I think that's a much earlier intervention. And right now on planet Earth, there's a bit of a culture clash going on between, yep. for instance, the approach to farming taught 10,000 years ago and the approach to farming taught 60,000 years ago. The Babylonian input is the one that leads to industrial scale, uh, petrochemical based, genetically modified farming. And it's really at war with the traditional rotational, organic combination farming, which stood us in good stead for tens of thousands of years. But right now, I think we have to make some decisions about whether we safeguard that earlier tutelage, which is far more empowering at a grassroots level, or if we simply allow the Babylonian model to take over, which leaves us all as pawns and slaves of the big corporations. And the before you said that, I was I was thinking, wouldn't it be miraculous to have a botanical and a farming leap forward? I, I'm trying to remember the exact words that you used when there's been other interventions. You, I mean, is don't we have enough fire in the sky? And uh, it's t 
time. You know, where, where's our help, Paul? When are they coming? <laughs> I think so. And I do think people are waking up to this. I think our recent international health emergency woke a lot of people up to issues of food security. And I think more people in the West are interested than have been for a long time in growing their own food, uh, growing food that's safe, organic, and that gives them a bit of resilience if we find ourselves going through economic hard times. And everybody seems to be saying that's going to happen. Everyone seems to be projecting it. Um, it's how my grandparents got through the years of depression. They had money, but they didn't need money for everything because so much of their food and resources came from the land on which they lived. And they only had a strip garden. They didn't live on an acreage. But a little strip garden is enough to feed a family if you know how to do it. Yeah. And I really think there's a great uptake right now of um, learning in that area. And I think we still have helpers around us in the present day wishing to assist us with that kind of learning. Yeah, there is. Yeah, go ahead, Nori. I know that your uh, your research is so vast, and that's so much of your amazing work that you put out. But how much, Paul? Because I know people go to you for for personal consulting and counseling and coach coaching. You know, people who have had experiences. Um, how much of those personal stories have really added to the research for you? Oh, I've been tremendously enriched by people who've contacted me with their own experiences. I, I hear from people who've had experiences that have totally altered their worldview through things they've seen, and that includes a lot of veterans of war who've been in the theater of war and suddenly realized their war is about something different than what they thought it was. They're on an archeological mission and they come home and their world has been blown apart and they have to find their feet, understand the, um, the credibility of what their peers are telling them about what they saw. And then there are others who contact me because they've seen things in the ancient texts and there's nowhere for them to go to discuss these things. Very often, people might see things in the Bible and think, oh, my goodness, that's that's an E.T., isn't it? But they can't talk to their pastor about it. It's taboo in their church, so where do they go? And then there are others who have direct close encounter experiences. And that can be extremely isolating, because who are you going to talk to about that? Who's going to believe you? Or who might say, let's go to the doctors, let's get you some medication? <laughs> Right. Uh, so it's isolating for that reason, isolating because your worldview will change if you've had a close encounter experience, and now you, you can feel like you're living in a world of one person because you're the only person who sees the world this way. I think we're very fortunate to have the internet because people like that potentially can begin discovering each other and realize there are heaps of people who've had close encounter experiences. You can tell each other about it, even if they've never told their family about it. I had an amazing experience after I published The Scars of Eden, which is the second in the Eden series. A friend of mine who is a, uh, a fellow pastor here in Australia had read the book. He had read that and Escaping from Eden, and he was visiting with his dad one day. And his dad had met me a couple of times and asked his son, What's Paul doing these days? And so my friend said, oh, well, actually, he's uh, writing about paleo contact in the Bible. And he wasn't quite sure how his dad would respond to this because his dad's a devout Christian believer. So uh, after having given this answer, his dad, without speaking a word, gets up, goes into the other room, comes back with a shoebox from a tall shelf, opens up the shoebox, takes out some papers, and says to his son, these are the pictures your grandfather drew of the craft that landed on his property in the 1950s 
and of the beings that he saw. Wow. Now, my friend had never heard that before, never knew that was part of their family's experience. It had never been mentioned. Now, all it took was my friend referencing my books, and it gave his dad permission to share this secret. And it's, it's a story what that repeats with, with so many people who come to me. They will talk yes. about this close encounter experience. And I'll say, are you the first in your family to have an experience like this? Have your mum or dad ever experienced, um, you know, a small grey or a blue person or a Nordic or an interaction with a craft, whatever it is they've experienced, um, or even um, an abduction experience? Oh, no, I don't think so. <laughs> no, 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 no. I'm, I don't think so, they'll say. And then a week later, they'll come back and say, I talked to my dad and I shared my experience with him. And he said, well, son, since you told me that, let me tell you what happened to me when I was 15. And out comes the story. And often parents don't tell these stories because they don't want their kids to think they're crazy or because they want to protect their kids. They don't want their kids interested in this because it was a disturbing experience. Even if nothing negative happened in the encounter, the aftermath of it was difficult to deal with. And there's another aspect of these experiences, which is higher cognitive abilities. People often, after a close encounter, will have heightened cognition. They will have precognitive experiences. And they don't know what to do with that. Sometimes it's very embarrassing. If ever they use those skills, they can be um, responded to very negatively. They can be mocked, avoided, hated, feared. And so people often try and keep a lid on that aspect of the story as well. Where I find families do better is when they are very in touch with their ethnic roots. So if I talk to an Irish family, Grandma will have used her precognition. Uh, Mum will be perpetually channeling while she's cooking. Now, they might have other language for it. Might be a conversation with Mother Mary. But <laughs> in reality, there's a channeling of higher information going on. And so sometimes there's language that these traditional cultures have for these um, extracurricular phenomena that are not part of mainstream Western education. Or if you've got roots in Native American tradition or original Australian tradition, again, you've got some background, some language for it. But so many of us are absolutely detached from our indigenous roots. I remember talking to a guy at the checkout at the supermarket the other day. And um, I can't remember how the conversation started, but uh, I asked him where, where his family was from because i think he had a scottish name and red hair or it was something like something very obvious that meant oh there's <laughs> some celtic either some celtic or some viking here and uh, i i asked this guy and he said oh i'm from nowhere so what do you mean you're from nowhere well i'm australian oh you're from australia with red hair yes i see <laughs> with a scottish name Come on, do, do the maths. But that's how detached we are often from our own ancestry, from our own history. Whereas I, I was at the checkout at a pet shop the other day. Here's another guy with very pale skin, red hair, goatee. I think he's got it tied at the back. And I said, well, I, I think you have some Viking in blood in you. Do I have that right? And he absolutely lit up. And he said, yes, I do, he said, and I love that tradition. I've been reading up on it. I find it so much more empowering than what I learned at, uh, at my Lutheran college down the road. Very, very in touch with it and empowered by it. And I think that's the advantage of being plugged into your ancestry, that it is empowering. Not only does it give you stories, it gives you a different understanding of who you are, what your greatness is, what your potential is. And I find that to be the gift of all the world's ancestral narratives. And won't it be yeah. amazing when we really know our ancestral heritage, you know, the, the sure. big picture? I mean, how empowering 
how miraculous that will be. It's amazing, Paul. I agree. I think it's very empowering. I think if we really start plumbing our relationship with our helpers from the Pleiades, we will suddenly feel more confident in a big and populated universe. We're part of a bigger family here. And then Plato, I think, adds another beautiful layer to it that takes us beyond the material aspect of the story, where Plato argues that we are beings of consciousness before we are material beings, that our consciousness pre-exists our conception and birth. We have a material experience here, and then we return, as the Gnostics said, to the great repose to take our learning with us and enrich the whole with the things we've gained on the journey. I think if you had that kind of a picture of the arc of life, which is the same arc of life the gospel describes for Jesus, I think he models all that for us. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, the Word was God, the Word became flesh, the Word dwelt among us. And then at the end, Jesus says, and now, Father, I'm going to return to you back to the glory we enjoyed before the foundation of the world. That's the story of all of us. And I think if we can see ourselves that way, beings of consciousness here to have a sequence of experiences and to learn from them, that gives us greater courage to go at life and say, well, I'm going to have experiences then, and I'm going to learn from them, and I'm going to have as great a human experience as I possibly can in the decades allowed to me in this space. Somehow it takes the pressure off. I think Religious frameworks are often limiting because you live your life with this constant fear of doing something wrong or getting it wrong or missing God's plan or displeasing God Almighty, and you tiptoe around mm -hmm. hoping you're not going to make a mistake. Well, that's not the most empowering way to live a life. It's not the most psychologically enjoyable way to live either. And it's one of the things that motivates me to write on this theme because I think we've so misunderstood what God is, and we've anthropomorphized God, we've turned God into a puppet master, we've yes. turned God into an exacting overlord, and this is a horrible, diminishing way to view the world in which we live. Yeah, and I also noticed that when we talked about our history, I think the biggest part of our history is all made up, because about a year and a half ago, Nori and I interviewed a couple here in Tucson, they said that they have done a lot of research on this and they found stone carvings that show the Vikings were here a thousand years ago, the Jews were here, and there were other people from the European continent. They had little villages right here, which is Tucson in the Phoenix area is right now. And that was over yes. years ago. Yes, for sure. I think we really underestimate how international the ancient world was. I think we do that in every period of history. Um, at the time of the Roman Empire, it was an international world, and people could go and study overseas. They could do a two-year posting from Rome to Great Britain. That's how easy it was to get around the world. And I think we begin to read some of the ancient texts differently when we realize that many of the ancient writers, including those who wrote for Jesus, were intellectually citizens of the world. That someone like Jesus or the Apostle Paul might be just as educated in the philosophies of the world as somebody like Plato. Uh, you can go far further back. You go to Gebekli Tepe, for instance, which was buried 8,000 years ago, and you will find motifs carved into the stone blocks there that represent a global culture. So at that time, prior to 8,000 years ago, there was a culture that spanned the globe that had the same lexicon of symbols and language in the canon of their art. Now you talk about who was on the continent of North America. As soon as you factor in that there's been a sequence of cataclysms, this international presence could be ages old. 70% of the megafauna of North America was extincted 
at the time of the Clovis Comet, which many scholars believe is what triggered the Younger Dryas Cold Period. So you're going back 12,800 years ago, and there was a civilization on North America, and it may very well have been an internationalized civilization at that point as well. Why on earth wouldn't it be? Because seafaring comes very, very early in the human story by whichever account of it you read. But somehow we bought into the, um, the idea that we are clever and our ancestors were stupid. And I, I just don't think that is correct. <laughs> I think there are things our ancestors knew that we don't know. Look at the stonework at Sacsayhuaman. They knew something we didn't know. Look at the size of the blocks they could manipulate in Baalbek, Lebanon. They knew something we didn't know. Look at the carvings of technology, medical technology in India. Our Indian ancestors knew things we didn't know. Now, that doesn't mean there hasn't been progress. That doesn't mean I'm not grateful for 21st century surgery rather than surgery 2,000 years ago. But it does question the meta-narrative of us clever ancestors stupid, us international ancestors local. It's a far more interesting picture than that. Yeah, and I think we also have an interplanetary family that hardly anybody talks about. But look at the Dogon people in Africa. They, about 5,000 years ago, they are, they have information about the Sirius star system being a binary star. And nobody knew that back then. And they say they came from there to their village and taught them how to be a better society 5,000 years ago. And this yes, that's is, right. They, yeah. they actually knew that Sirius was a triple star system. And uh, they knew what a white dwarf was. They had a, a language for that. I think it was, I think Sigitolo was their language for the mm. white dwarf. How could they possibly know that? And certainly when that story was first told to Western anthropologists in the 1930s, 1920s, 1930s, yep. those anthropologists didn't know Sirius was a triple star system. They didn't know what a white dwarf was. And when later the elders of the Dogon people asked, how do you know this information? They said, just as you said just now, Arge, well, our helpers came from Sirius. They came from Sirius C, to use the modern word. And the hint is there not only came from, but are the progenitors of their people group. Now, incidentally, the Dogon people have their roots in Egypt. They live now in Mali, West Africa, but they have their roots in ancient Egypt. And so this intervention from Sirius is something that takes us far further back in human history. And it's one of three regions of space that crops up time and time again when you listen to local indigenous story. Sirius, the Pleiades, and Orion. And there's an extraordinary verse in the Bible. It comes in the book of Job, which many scholars believe is the oldest book in the Bible. It's not the beginning of the story, but it's the oldest literary source, an Arabic source, many scholars believe. And there's a verse that essentially challenges the human being, can you reverse the power dynamic between those on Earth and those on Sirius? Those on Earth, those in Orion, those on Earth, those among the Pleiades. What does that mean? Why is there a power dynamic between those three regions of space and Earth. It's because, as ancestors all around the world testify, that's where our visitors came from. And they were so far advanced of us that there's no way you could reverse that power dynamic. It's a small surprise that we would look at visitors with technology advanced enough they can do subspace travel, which they'd have to do to get here. They can do a wormhole, an artificial wormhole, and then get down to the planet's surface, terraform it, learn how to communicate. Clearly, they're very advanced. The hint is there they can do genetic modification as well. So our ancestors would naturally say, well, these are our gods. 
these are the ones we must worship. And I think we've done ourselves a great disservice by maintaining that language. The English word God is a real distortion of what our ancestors were really saying. They were talking about advanced beings. They were talking about sky beings. They were talking about powerful ones. So Elohim in the Bible doesn't translate as God. It translates as powerful ones. There is a Norse word, I think it's Asir, which has been translated as gods. Again, it means powerful ones. And then the Sumerian word means beings from the sky or shining ones. That's the language. And I think it's far more helpful and enabling when we use the root meanings instead of the word gods. Because as soon as you hear the word gods, whether it's capital G or small g, you go into, oh, this is a fable. This is a metaphor. This is a fairy tale. No, it's not. It's the story of an encounter with an advanced being from off planet. Use that language and we can begin to get to the bottom of what it was our ancestors really did experience. Yeah, come to think of it, what else can they say? You know, there is no money in this. You got to have the controversy in order to make money from it. And, and then other things, when you find books on the shelf in the higher you know, institutions of learning, boy, oh boy, they sure don't like to admit that they were wrong. They can't do that. <laughs> It's so difficult. I think, uh, you know, peer review is important. Um, you want experts reviewing experts, but it's a very conservatizing dynamic that throws up. How is anyone going to want to risk their reputation by saying something that challenges all their colleagues in the field all around the world? Who's going to want to publish a book that says, you're all wrong? Um, <laughs> they're going to be made mincemeat of. They're going to be reviewed in the harshest way possible. And that's why very often the new ideas come from outside of the halls of academia. It will be writers like myself joining the dots, seeing the implications of the work of great luminaries and saying, hold on, you said this. Isn't the implication of that this? And then the academics can say, have you seen this ridiculous book that Paul Wallace has written? Let's have a talk about it. And then they can have a conversation and say, well, maybe he's got a point there. He's made a mistake there, but maybe that general idea, maybe there's something to that. And then the conversation can advance. People can sound each other out. They might even say, well, I'd actually wondered that myself. <laughs> but often that's where the, the jump will come from, from someone who's actually got no reputation to risk. <laughs> putting the ideas out there so that people can discuss them. Yes, that's brilliant. That's brilliant. Paul, we only have a few minutes left. Will you please tell everybody how they can find all of your books and how they can find you? I'm so grateful. If you go to Amazon or Kindle, you will find Escaping from Eden, The Scars of Eden, Echoes of Eden, The Eden Conspiracy, and the fifth in the series is coming soon. If you go to fifthkind.tv, you can support my work in Paleo Contact. You can find me on YouTube at the Fifth Kind and the Paul Wallace channel. And if you're interested in doing coaching with me, sharing experience with me, go to my website, which is paulanthonywallace.com. Beautiful, beautiful. And I, I love how you brought it all together, Paul, and the name of the, the title of this show was so fully realized during our conversation. Thank you so much, Paul. And just I just don't even have words. Thank you. Well, thank you both. It's always a pleasure joining you. I love the conversations we have, and I love the platform you've created. And I think now is the perfect time the kind of space you've created there is an appetite on people like i've never known before to um, get to the truth of who we are and what's possible for us yes I got a question for you paul what is the title of your next book 
<laughs> oh, I'm going to keep that under wraps for just a little longer, <laughs> but I'll say that it does tie our ancestral narratives with what's happening right now in Washington, just to give people an orientation in that. I like it. I like it. Thank you so much. Thank you, everybody. Uh, see you in the chat room. Thank you if you're here on the replay. Of course you're here on the replay we're going to watch the. i'm going to watch this multiple times but thank you paul wallace for your for your presence and your your light and you are a true luminary augie thank you thank you mac we'll see everybody next week and don't forget we've got the friday show quantum well-being 7 30 eastern it's a quick half hour show and then we've got the new paranormal show that's sunday evening uh 8 p.m eastern Much love, everybody. Take care.